jazz. Keep recording. All right, we're good. Let's make this shit happen. All right, sounds good to me. Yeah. Alrighty. All right. Yep. Well. Right when you are. All right. Welcome to Jazz Bastard Podcast 272. I'm Pat. I'm Mike. That sound you hear in the background is not angels. We haven't died and gone to heaven. It's harp. We're going to do a special devoted to Dorothy Ashby's early career in honor of a new box set released by the New Land label this year called With Strings Attached. And Dorothy's kind of, I feel like, has been top of mind recently. A lot of reissues out there of her very limited discography. A lot of her um, followers talking up her influence. Most notably, Brandy Younger, who does the introduction to this this set. And uh, we have not sampled the vinyl, which is limited to 1,000 sets, uh, but they did send us high-res files. So we're going to be talking about the digital version of this box set about Dorothy Ashby. And was she somebody you listened to before this project? Never, never, never. And um, Charles has been out of town. Otherwise, I would have re- uh, got in touch with him. You know, they overlap. They're contemporaries in Detroit. Um, and I wonder, I, I'm sure he knows some of the people she knows or knew. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised if he was familiar with her, but I uh, was not able to uh, talk to him about, about her because that would have been kind of interesting. So anyway, um, no, never, never heard of her. Um, and then when you suggested we do this, I, I kind of looked up what people on um, Rate Your Music have to say about her, uh, which is kind of fun, mainly because people on Rate Your Music are often idiots. <laughs> and particularly so in this case, uh, there are very few comments about, about her first six albums, but the comments that you see tend to be, oh, this is elevator jazz, or oh, this is, you know, and I'm like, well, you don't really uh, know very much. Now, there have been more recently with the um, box release, there's some people who are who sort of know some stuff who are actually starting to chime in and say reasonable things. But the the very first review that I read was like, this is crap, you know, I'm like, okay, you are idiots. But yeah, uh, my favorite comment is by someone who said, attention, Joanna Newsom fans, please listen to this record while punching yourselves in the face. <laughs> okay. Which I just feel like. Joanna Newsom fans should be punching themselves in the face as often as possible. Uh, I know. So. You're, you're right. <laughs> well, um, I did look up the, <laughs> the famous Penguins take on a couple of her records. Oh, what did they say? I have got them, but I haven't looked. The New Grove Dictionary of Jazz describes Ashby as the only important Bob Harpist, which seems a rather empty acolyte. Ashby came to notice playing with Louis Armstrong, but tried valiantly to fit her instrument into the ne- new horn-dominated idiom. There are affinities with Wes Montgomery's playing, and she learns something from Bud Powell. She solos well and swings harder than you would dare hope. So <laughs> that's kind of... They're I don't know what like, that means, that you would dare hope. Right. You know, I, you get the feeling that that era, which is long past, I'm sure that if these guys were still around with us, and you know, that they were just saying, look, this is an almost impossible task, and she does it pretty well. But, yeah. you know, it could seem a little bit dismissive of the idea itself, but... Having undertaken it, they acknowledge that she does a pretty good job. So we're talking about Dorothy Ashby. She's born 1932 and dies in 1986, uh, rather young of, I believe, cancer. It's uh, of an illness anyway, not a sudden death or something. And this set that we're looking at looks at her first six albums, and really that's more than half her discography. 
And it's a little odd because she's probably best known for session work. And everybody loves to mention the fact she was on Stevie Wonder's Songs in the Key of Life. And her later 60s albums that uh, have been sampled extensively. And these are not really, she's not quite there yet. This is a more straight-ahead jazz stuff. So uh, the albums included are The Jazz Harpist, released on Regent in 1957. Hip Harp with Frank Wess, released on Prestige 1958. In a minor groove with Frank Wess, and Wess is actually on all three of the first albums. Uh, on New Jazz 1958. Soft Winds, The Swinging Harp of Dorothy Ashby on Jazzland 1961. Just Dorothy Ashby on Argo 1962. And The Fantastic Harp of Dorothy Ashby on Atlantic 1965. And then after that, you know, Afro Harping and the Rubiat of Dorothy Ashby are probably her best known recordings. And those are more in the 60s, spacier, you know, they're a little bit wilder productions. These are mostly pretty straight ahead. Mm -hmm. Any other uh, opening thoughts about Dorothy or harp in jazz in general? I mean, it was not something I had not been following her. It was not really something I've considered much. I know there are some harpists out there. Obviously, we talked about Brandy Younger, and we'll talk about her again. Um, I haven't looked up the other harpists. I don't know that I've heard a modern jazz harpist aside from Brandy. I, does anybody spring to mind? Yeah, yeah I don't know of any others either. I, I, I don't know any that I know of none. So that's, you know, it's new. It's a whole new thing for me. So, yeah. Yeah, so... I think in a way we could say this is kind of the next step after the reevaluation of a higher profile figure who also played harp in this era, Alice Coltrane, where originally a lot of her work tended to be dismissed as, well, she was just John Coltrane's wife, blah, blah, blah. That's the only reason she got attention and then has been reassessed for its qualities, you know, just through historical revisionism, through better understanding of her biography that, you know, she was not by any means someone who was initiated into music by John Coltrane. She was already a very accomplished musician. And of course, this is the lens of feminism and what have women brought to jazz? You know, I'm, I was aware watching the Barbie movie last night that there's no harp Barbie. You know, come on, where's all the other Barbies <laughs> were presented, but no harpist Barbie was there. So no harp Barbie. <laughs> yeah, you know, there's there's a lot of varieties, uh, and by the end of the movie, there's some fun new ones. If you haven't seen it, it's probably worth seeing at some point. Can Can I ask? Did you did you did you do Barbieheimer? I didn't. No, no. I, I've wow. Um, I was I was happy to get through Barbie given my my health. <laughs> I don't okay. think I could have made six hours of film in, in one day. But yes, everybody's doing the, the Oppenheimer Barbie double bill. I think Rand's planning to do that with some friends when he gets back to Oregon. So he, he's young. He can take it. We were, we were considering Barbieheimer by bleh, Barbieheimer, except that we're privileged to have access to an IMAX theater. And they say, if you can see Oppenheimer and IMAX, you should. The thought of, well, there is no such thing as Barbie and IMAX, but that would be terrifying, I imagine. So. <laughs> you can really look at um I can't think of the actor's names um whoever is is playing Ken um a lot <laughs> Ryan, <of>, Ryan Gosling <laughs> a lot of beefcake to enjoy uh they they definitely make sure that his pectorals are on full display about half that film so in IMAX I think those would be just delicious <laughs> sorry I think it's really funny all right. Thank you. 
Okay. Well, anyway, so we're just going to kind of dive in here. This is a, I think the box, did you uh, have a chance to read the material that came with it or did you just listen I, to the I music? I did not. Should I have done so? Was it uh, worth Well, one? yeah, I, I, don't, I cannot judge you one way or another. It, it's, I finally got myself to look at it uh, like today or yesterday and it, they give us the formatted book, which is very cool images of it, which, you know, the, the book that comes with it has lots of memorabilia and images from her life. It's got an introduction by Brandy Younger and then a in-depth essay by Shannon Effinger. And um, Shannon, I, I the essay's pretty good. It, there are some dangling participles, as we used to say in the biz. You know, it's not flawlessly written, but it, it's certainly coherent and easy to follow and, and overall well done. And it runs into this issue with Dorothy that you can't tell a triumphalist story of her career. There is no breakthrough moment where suddenly people finally recognize what it is she's been doing. There's a rather she plugs away, makes these records, which, you know, this isn't, as as a set itself, this is an interesting undertaking. Because they are asking something along the lines of, let's see here, $240 for this box set of, of... six LPs yeah, 240, 250 bucks, um, which is a lot of money. Yeah. You know, I, you might be able to get a little bit cheaper than that, but when you're looking at uh, three and a half hours of music total on six LPs and the least probably known, and I, I, I'm not trying to be dismissive as we talk about these, I hope you, and I certainly enjoyed them some quite a bit, but they are not the albums that made her, um, I don't know if posthumously is right, but famous later on to samplers, to people that, you know, he's probably best known for the later stuff. And so obviously it's a deluxe thing, comes with the book and everything, but the story the book tells is not one of, and then Dorothy made it. It's Dorothy did these albums, uh, Dorothy's, uh, and her husband had a, a, a kind of playwrights group. Dorothy wrote, Dorothy taught, uh, though she wasn't into formal teaching, she was a great encourager and nurturer of talent and would let people practice in her home and give advice, if not formal lessons. And, and the the end of the book actually profiles several of her people she influenced, several of her students. So and there's nothing wrong with that, but it, it is kind of the thing where, you know, as you outline her career and then what she's trying to describe is kind of somebody who is working behind the scenes in a sense in, in a not very well rewarded field and the kinds of ways she contributed to culture and, and jazz without ever becoming celebrated uh, during her lifetime for what she could do. So it's interesting, you know, uh, essay. I mean, again, these are all analog pressings. I've not seen them. I'm assuming that exquisite care was taken because if you're charging 240 or 250 bucks for six fairly short LPs, It should have been. Uh, You have to, because it's a lot of money per disc. And I'll just be curious to see how it does. I mean, I think it's it's a neat celebration of her, and I guess my my guess is it's aimed at the collectibles market for people who will buy it and plan to flip it in five years. When once it's out of print, the price is going to go up. Mm. But how quickly these thousand sets are going to sell out, I just don't know. And her, her stuff is available. Recently, there's been a rash of issues of many of these early albums on labels of as uncertain provenance. They probably are not. I'm guessing they are not from the master tapes. They may well be dubs from digital. They, I got one that sounds okay. But there are other 
ways to listen to this music out there. But yeah, for the collector, that's that's the set. Uh, we're really going to talk more about the music. I just thought it'd be worth taking a minute to think about this set and its competition right now in the marketplace. And again, what what the goals are here? It, it's 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 interesting. It's an interesting undertaking. But clearly, I think for some people in the jazz field, Dorothy's having a moment. And that sound you hear is the cat rubbing up against my microphone because, you know, she loves my microphone much more than she loves me. Okay, well, I'll stop blathering. Do uh, you just want to go through the albums chronologically, or did you have? Sure, although I think a couple of them we can kind of talk about together in part right. because they have identical they have identical personnel. Right. So the the ones in particular I'm talking about, basically the first three with um with Frank West, um it would be probably useful just to talk about those three more or less together. I am impressed. I have to say, um, I'm going to mention the fact that um, she's on a pile of different labels, right? She's on, in fact, six different labels for her first six albums, um, which either is like a story of great insight of, of producers or a great failure of producers, you know, or, or labels who go, Oh, this is great. Oh, no, we don't want this, right? I mean, right. so she bops from Regent to Prestige to New Jazz to Jazzland to Argo to Atlantic before sort of finding a home at Cadet. So it's kind of cool that the box set is able to pull, you know, the, the stuff together from three separate albums. But what's interesting is that she keeps this basic format for the first three albums, um, a different rhythm section. But, you know, Frank West, the longtime uh, bassy uh, player, uh, on flute uh, for the first three albums, which is uh, pretty cool. I think that she kind of managed that. Um, the drummers uh, kind of move around and the bass players move around. But um, yeah, she, she, she sort of hits on a, a format pretty early that seems to make uh, a lot of sense and that kind of works for her. Um, and that I think works well uh, on, on album. So yeah, let's talk about the first three kind of together. Okay. If that makes good. sense. Yep. And that's the Jazz Harpist, Regent 1957, Hip Harp, Prestige 1958, and a Minor Groove, New Jazz 1958. And I've got it. I know that certain times, like Contemporary, for instance, sometimes release things under the, like the stereo or stereophonic label when they wanted to stress that the album they were releasing was cutting edge stereo. So I don't know whether mm. any of these labels are sub-labels of other labels. I'm just not smart enough in that history. I tend to think of them as the kind of things that the original jazz classics would have had under its umbrella back in the 80s and 90s. But whether these were all independent operations back, I just don't know. But yeah, you get the sense she did not find a label home. She did not find someone who's willing to champion her long term. She bounced around. Um, so, uh, yeah, Frank West, tenor player, flute player, older, I believe, than Dorothy. And kind of the more established name, though he was by no means super famous or something at this time. Let's see, he's yeah 1922, so he's born in 22, whereas um, 
she's born in 32, so 10 years older. And he decides, interestingly, you know, I, I got this set of Eddie Lockjaw Davis with Shirley Scott on Oregon. And Jerome Richardson's on all these dates in that set. And he mainly plays flute, but he'll bring out the berry, he'll bring out the tenor. In this case, Frank is sticking to flute. And you think that's a pretty good choice. Is that is that right? I do, actually. So um, I think the first thing to say about, you know, Dorothy Ashby on, on the harp is that I'm surprised, actually, you know, when I listened to these, I thought harp ought to be a little more well-represented in jazz because it's this weird hybrid instrument in the sense that you can play. Um, so sometimes when she plays it, it sounds a little bit like a guitar. Um, and it sounds like she's sort of picking out melodies and so forth. But because you have the ability to both pick and strum simultaneously, and also to do these sort of lovely little runs, which she doesn't do a great deal of, you really kind of have this weird instrument that's both rhythm and melody simultaneously. And you can hear her sometimes sort of playing almost like a bass accompaniment with her, with, with her, you know, when she's, when she's playing the melody. So she can sort of do both things at the same time. It's kind of, it's kind of cool. You hear her sort of playing bass and, and, and melody simultaneously, uh, almost as if she's, you know, a piano player, right? Uh, but then when, when she solos, she has a, the kind of, um, facility that a guitar player, I think, would have to kind of, um, pick out interesting lines. And so for those who, who, uh, aren't familiar, I mean, she really is a bebop harpist. She's legit. Maybe that just seems like a silly thing to say, but for someone who thinks what place does harp have in jazz, she's a legit bebop player. Like she, she belongs in the idiom. Naturally, because of the instrumentation, especially harp with rhythm and flute, it's not going to be like scorching, right? This isn't, this isn't melter stuff. Right. Um, and it's just, and this it's, specifies harp, flute, bass drums so no other harmony instrument there just just the four i just because i don't know if he specified that but yeah sorry yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and so um what what bebop elements here are going to be between the two you know lead voices frank west is on flute and ers but it's sort of it's like um it's like softer bebop only because the instruments themselves aren't there's no brain melting stuff on these <laughs> That doesn't mean that there isn't that it's not hip, right? I mean, as the title of the second album, you know, indicates, she plays a hip harp, and so this is this is flat out bebop sensibility, which is, you know, I, I found that really, uh, I don't know, maybe surprising isn't the right word, refreshing, interesting, compelling. I liked it. I thought she did just fine on these, and I I thought her uh, solos were. I, I, they, they held my attention. Now, having said that, because of the instrumentation, especially on the first three, you do need to focus or 
it will turn into background because we're not trained. Um, I don't think culturally our ears are attuned to thinking hard about harp that it tends to turn into pillow music for a lot of us. And so if you're a lazy listener, this can sort of become background really quickly. But if you pay attention, in fact, it's quite good. Um, and she's, you know, she's legit bebop player. So, um, I would recommend for people who are interested in these to, to start by listening to cuts that you know, right? Dancing in the Dark, Moonlight in Vermont, and then hear what she does with them. Uh, hear how she brings these kinds of changes on these tunes on a harp in this bebop idiom. It's, it's really compelling stuff. Um, and I don't think she could have found well, I'm not sure, but I, I think that Frank West is a really good foil for her. I think the choice of flute here makes all the sense in the world, and the two of them together are a, a compelling pairing. I, I, I like them a lot. I think that works. So for these first three, I really dug them. I thought um, these three um, albums work really, really well at, at what at establishing this sort of voice, this sort of identity, um, and this this mode for her. Um, and again, for the most part, picking, doing covers makes a lot of sense. Now, on some of the, um, I guess, some of the later things, she starts, well, there are some of her own compositions on these. And I think all of side B on the jazz harpist are her compositions. I have to say that they didn't stick for me. I enjoyed them, but I, I didn't go, ah, there's a new standard. Yeah. You know, I liked them, but there, there wasn't enough. You know, maybe for a this is an interesting question. Maybe for a heart play, maybe Brandy Younger would listen to these and go, "Oh yeah, spicy really stands out." You know, maybe to a heart player, some of these cuts would be really innovative and striking. But to a to a newbie, the the harp doesn't for me on the first listen convey a melody strongly enough where I could go, "Oh, that's really you know an amazing song." You know what I mean? Yeah, right. Whereas hearing her do covers you immediately get a sense of oh here's what she can do with that here's what she can do with that here's how she can she can play that song um and so the choice of mostly covers and um you know she insists on doing a couple of her own um on it seems like every release but the, the choice of primarily covers is a good one i think because it really gives you a sense of of what she's able to do so i like what she does but you do have to focus on it especially on these first 3 or the flute harp thing can put you to sleep if you're not careful um because it, it can't turn to background unfortunately but yeah i like these quite a bit i hope you like them yeah yeah i was i think it is a pretty good combination but it is as you say going to connote a kind of lightness. Uh, yeah. Both harp, which you can't really... Uh, apparently, I do not understand anything about playing the harp. But what I've read is that, you know, there's pedals, and it is difficult to play it chromatically. You really have to think very carefully about what pedal you're pressing and where to be able to run the kind of chromatic lines that are very simple on most wind instruments. So it's... Hmm. Or guitar. It, it's just it's not kind of designed necessarily for that kind of work. So she had to kind of build a technique to play in the style on this unusual uh, instrument. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. I don't know anything about um, harp playing either. And uh, I mean, what do the pedals do on a harp? Well, I think as far as I know, they change what notes are being sounded by the strings. They, they, 
shift the string somehow so that you're playing different notes with them. But beyond that, I am completely at sea. You talk to a harpist who really understands the technical challenges. I know I've like read interviews like from Brandy Younger who talks about, you know, Dorothy explained that, you know, it's kind of hard to play in this idiom because of these technical um, difficulties. And I think it's one reason we associate the glissando, the characteristic harp sound of someone running their fingers across the strings, you know, uh, is designed to have a very consonant sound when you do that. And then, of course, flute is an instrument with very few harmonic overtones. It's closer to a sine wave than most. So you can play it expressively, but you have to work a little harder to get those shades out of it than you do many horns. And I think right, Wes right. Is, is a strong player. I mean, he certainly can run a bebop line. He does not sound like he's out of his water, out of his depth. Uh, that it, It's a weak second for him. He sounds confident and able to kind of play those lines. And I certainly noticed, I mean, I feel like this is where she attempts for three records on, you know, fairly well-known labels of the time. And, you know, good musicians. The drummers are all names we've heard of. The bass players aren't necessarily, but they're all fine. I mean, this is, these are real musicians. This is not something done in a garage with nobodies. But she's trying to prove, and I think in a way does, but it's a, it's a pyrrhic victory that you can play bebop on harp. And there's even moments where I feel like I haven't re- recorded them all. I can't give them an example. But she'll put little hip little quotations in, even in her solos, of other bebop songs as a way of signaling, hey, I know this tradition, I know this stuff, I'm hip to it. You notice the way like Mel Torme would fit in little licks from The Birth of the Cool into his vocal stuff. You know, he's just like sharing with the in the know people that he's aware of this stuff. You know, he's not just, you know, singing off a page and, and, and clueless about the jazz tradition. So I feel like these are the albums where she really makes a full frontal assault on the, on what was going on at the time. Prestige, God knows, made hundreds of albums of quartets and quintets playing a mix of standards and actually fewer originals typically than she includes in a kind of, you know, bebop or hard bop style. And she's like, I can be in this world. Um, I don't know about you. I kind of felt like the next album, she's starting to try to find other paths to some degree. What did you think about, I don't know whether you want to go next to, um, the next one would be, I, I think it's the one with vibes. Yeah. Soft winds. Yes. So what do you think about yeah. Soft Winds? Okay, so uh, first of all, I'm kind of struck with... So this... <laughs> 
I feel like this is Dorothy Ashby's bid for commercial relevance. Like this album, she's like, I'm going to put butts in seats. I'm going to get ears. I'm going to, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to imagine a flute, flute player, or sorry, a harp player going, God damn it. I'm going to get it. I'm going to, I'm going to put butts in seats and because it's, you know, harp, you know, it has associations with angels. One imagines soft, fluffy things, you know? And so it's fun to sort of imagine Dorothy Ashby going, God damn it. I need respect. I need, I need, I need to get radio airplay because it's like a, it, the album is almost entirely, uh, film and Broadway covers. And they're, they're recent films for the most part. Wild is the Wind, Laura. So it's like, it's like she's, she's like, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go commercial, which right. sounds funny, right? You know, cause you think harp is, it, it's almost as she's like, I've just been too avant garde and cutting edge and I, I have to, I have to sell out. This is her sellout album. I thought I, I was less enamored of the pairing with piano and vibes, to be honest. Yeah. Um, I thought it was a little too soft, which is weird because it's not like you think of the flute as like a, uh, a, a hard instrument. Speaking of flute as hard instrument, I just picked up my very own copy of Herbie Mann's Push Push, uh-huh. the famous album with Herbie shirtless and his flute strapped across his back. And uh, so thinking of hard flutes made me think of Herbie Mann. Anyway, yeah, I, I feel like the flute gives a little more uh, edge and, a, and almost acidity, whereas uh, the, the piano, but especially the vibes, I, I don't think that's a good choice because vibes um also are kind of almost like a hybrid instrument right you can play you can play melody and bass at the same time you can play multiple lines and it's sort of this both rhythm and lead instrument and i felt like there was maybe a little too much overlap with the sound uh or the sound quality i don't know it um it was a very sweet it's almost saccharine this album is almost saccharine and if you have trouble attending closely to dorothy's lines on the first three albums you're gonna have a real hard time with this one i do think it's a good album but man uh that instrumentation is tough i I just i i found it very easy to lose focus and just kind of bathe in the sweetness of it all it sounds like a film soundtrack for a happy film Although I thought, you know, the guns of Navarone, I mean, there's an interesting choice. Um, <laughs> I mean, she has got to be the only person who's covered two Dmitry Tiomkin compositions. Dmitry Tiomkin was like a, 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 a studio, a film studio composer and um, conductor. You know, that's his claim to fame. And I can't imagine anyone has ever done two of his songs on a jazz album before. He must have been flattered as shit. Or maybe <laughs> not. Maybe he's like, I wanted, I was hoping for Charlie Parker and I got a harpist. You know, I don't know. <laughs> 
so anyway, yeah, I mean, I think for me the low point is, and it's a fine rendition, but you know, I, I'm not a fan of the song Laura anyway. Yes, yeah, you don't like. I don't the movie, think it's one like of the John. Songs, yeah. yeah, and then with that instrumentation, I'm like, uh, it reminds me of the things I hate about the movie so much. I don't know. So yeah, I I feel like this is a good album, but it is, uh, I think, probably the least successful from my perspective. The one that I think. I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm not happy with. I'm not as happy with it. Let's put it that way. And it features Terry Pollard on piano and vibraphone, a, a little-known, I never heard of her, female, another female jazz artist. There's a great YouTube clip of her playing vibes. With this, she plays, and this other guy comes in, and she pushes him away, and she plays, and you know. So a uh, fine musician, but again, someone who's kind of fallen out of the history books. Um, yeah, you know, this is an album with eleven tracks, where the other ones were seven or eight. Only two of them go over three minutes long. Uh, some of them are two and a half. So it is more a sense of instrumental covers of well-known tunes. And just by the very nature of the format and, and the brevity of, of the tracks, you're going to get less improvisation. You just, you, you know, this is no longer her trying to signal to the jazz hipsters that she's one of them and she knows the stuff. It's more trying to appeal to mom and pop in the elevator How's it going? You know, do you like this? So I do feel like this is an attempt to change things up. I think, I can't remember what the reasoning was, whether Frank just had to get back with Basie at this point or he was following his own career, but that partnership had ended after a couple years. Yeah, I, I don't have anything necessarily opposed, but again, you know, the vibraphone is a, it's another instrument that is very, it can be wonderful but it does not lend itself to emotional inflection. It is a naturally cool instrument. You can't bend notes on it exactly. It, it, the sound, the, the, the vibration of it, you know, it, it's just, it's not controlled by you the way the, vi- the vibrato of a horn is by your mouth. So it, it doesn't have that kind of, you can't vary it as easily for expressive ends. And, you know, obviously we're both huge fans of Bobby Hutcherson. I mean, I love vibe stuff, but, it, it's it's not so much that it's do you build cool with more cool, do you want? Yeah. And that's really for the most part what we get on these records is what she doesn't do is try cool with hot or abrasive or you know a, a, a more contrasting uh, group that, that the inner dynamics are a little bit more uh, stressful or based on tension and because we already associate the harp with easy listening music or beautiful music or angels, it, it it kind of reinforces that impression, even though once you bear down and listen, you know, she's playing some good stuff. Yeah, this is one where my attention began to wander. And this is another issue, is it? well, if you don't like this record much and you're getting the set you now have, a very expensive all analog, you know, I mean, it, they're, they're kind of, you're kind of boxed in, as it were. You're, they're selling you a group of things, and so... You're going to end up with, and this may just be irrelevant because it may be the majority of people buying this are just doing it to have the object uh, to put on the shelf. It may not even own a turntable or to flip it. So I, I may just be talking out my butt. But as a person who actually listens to the music he buys and doesn't plan to resell it for a profit, it's a little problematic to throw in a record that, I, you know, I, I think is probably one of her weaker efforts, you know, and that becomes part of the set. So anyway, yeah, it's. It's fine. I mean, it's good. It's well done. It's no black mark against her or something. But yeah, I would agree with you. It's kind of, kind of easy listening. Kind of, and, it, and I think it's, it's someone encouraging you to think of it that way by the way it's laid out. 
Okay, so that was 1961 on Jazzland, Soft Winds. The next album is the not helpfully titled Dorothy Ashby on Argo, 1962. just to make search engine optimization especially difficult. Of course, that was not an issue in 1962. So what do you think of this one? So um, this is dead interesting to me because um, after the stuff with Frank West, I thought, well, it would be interesting to hear Dorothy by herself. And um, maybe the fear had been that the harp isn't sufficiently weighty enough to carry a, a trio, you know, um, right. because like piano, it's going to be, you know, uh, both lead and, you know, melody and rhythm and blah, blah, blah. Um, and so you need that other, you need that fourth voice. And after the first three albums, I thought, well, I kind of want to hear what Dorothy can do on her own, you know? And um, so I was glad that the, uh, this one kind of came up. And uh, I think it's fine. And I think it's definitely an improvement on the fourth album. Uh, it was a, it was a, I think a smart choice to go into a trio setting. And I think by this point, she's worked with the bassist before Herman Wright, John Tooley. I've never heard of. I think this is her first time with him. Um, so this is her date. It's like her, you know, she's yeah. they're there serving her agenda. And I, I think she does just fine. I, I think this is, I think this is a proof of concept. Like this album is proof of concept that Harp can lead a trio in a jazz setting um, convincingly and compellingly. Um, again, you have to focus in. Um, it's easy to drift. Uh, and I think it's, it's the ease of driftiness that leads, you know, the knuckleheads on rate your music who don't know anything about jazz to, to bitch about it as elevator music. I think it's better than that. But, you know, when you hear her play Satin Doll or Stranger in Paradise, you better pay attention or you're just not going to – it's going to drift on you, right? You see, Stranger um, so in Paradise, I just feel like that is – that's the red flag to the bull in terms of wanting to call this elevator music. If, you know, I was right. an A&R guy, I'd be begging on hands and knees, let that one go, Dorothy, because it just – I think she does some of the glissandos there. I mean, it – I'm sure – Countless harpists. There's not and a countless, lot of meat on that bone. <laughs> yeah, countless, countless harpists and countless Holiday Inns have played that song. By its nature, it seems to suck you into a vortex of easy listening, decorative yeah. music. And it, it, this is a ten album, or let me try again. I'm a little ill today. It's a ten song set. So again, we're given fairly brief renditions of most of these songs. 
Uh, there are a couple, three that go over four, I guess. It, you know, So she's a little bit more willing to stretch past three minutes here. There's only a couple real short ones, but there's only one that hits five. So more stretching out than last time, and probably a little bit more, I don't know, is it fair to say this is more jazz repertoire to some degree? I think so. I mean, you know, picking up some Ellington here is, is a good choice. Yeah, I, I, I think this is I think this is pretty good. And uh, I like what she does on the jazz songs. What you have to do is you have to pay attention after she states the melody. Because when you hear the melody, you think, oh, okay, and then you drift. Um, but it's when she starts the solo, when she starts to tune out a little bit, that you go, oh, okay, this isn't just lounge music. So that's what you kind of have to attend right. to. Um, yeah. and, and that demands your attention, especially the first time through the melody. But yeah, I think, I, I, like I said, I think this is proof of concept. She's like, I can play, I can play Bob. The uh, choice of Django by John Lewis. Well, in general, I thought the second side, side B on this was the quieter side. I thought the stronger side was side A. Um, side B, I mean, if you're headed toward third streamy territory, I don't think that's a good move if you want to be a bebop uh, harpist. Well, I'm, I'm not sure that she does want to be a bebop harpist after the first three, because I think she gave that a hell of a college try, and it doesn't seem to have led her anywhere. So, I mean, not that she's given up jazz, but she's less interested in showing off how hip she is and, and really playing out of the jazz playbook. Yeah, Django, I don't know. I mean, it's it celebrates a guitarist, but anytime, yeah, right, there's that danger. And, of course, as you say, I think part of our problem is, and, and maybe a great harp connoisseur, could could say, oh, that's Dorothy Ashby playing that melody on a harp. But like where I can say, oh, that's clearly Dexter Gordon playing that melody on a saxophone or that's Stan Getz or whoever. When Dorothy plays a melody on the harp, I hear harp. I just don't know right. enough about harp to say, oh, that's Dorothy putting Dorothy's doing Dorothy stuff to the melody. Uh, it sounds like the melody being played on harp to me. And that's partially my ignorance and may partially be down to the fact that as I've said, it's a little tougher to be expressive and idiosyncratic and individualistic on that instrument. It, it dominates the sound production in a way that it seems less malleable to the way you play it than, say, a trumpet or a saxophone or even a piano to some degree, even though the piano is strings being struck with hammers, at least to a neophyte. You know, So when I hear it like, like you, when I hear those melodies, I just kind of, oh, that's a heart played a melody. Which, again, you know, we've all heard in, in elevators and holiday inns and whatever. So you have to then have to say, well, I've got to save my brain because in a minute it's going to be a harpist improvising on this. And that's something I haven't heard a thousand times. But yeah, she does some, I mean, she does Satin Doll by Duke Ellington, Little Darling, Neil Hefty, Django. Those are all kind of, I think of as from the jazz standard playbook. She does some other standard. She does a couple of her own things, John R. and Booze. But I still feel like that, the, to some degree, the, the gravity here is more towards playing the song 
than it is stretching out as it was on the first three albums. I mean, you know, not as ex- extremely as the previous album with the Vibest, but there's still a little bit of a sense that some of this is about a certain amount of energy spent. Here's a f- harp playing a pretty melody in a pretty way. And then there's also some jazz that gets snuck in there. You know, it, the more I've thought about this, I would it have been cool to hear her with a Richard Davis on bass? Yep. You know, somebody that was, or, you know, a drummer given, she works with some fine drummers on these early albums. I mean, you know, um, Snap, Crack, Snap, Crackle, and Pop, Roy Haynes is on one, Art Taylor's on one, but they aren't exactly able to or allowed to be, and maybe they can't be, proactive because, at least in the real world, you drown it out. And even in the studio, it might be difficult to pull off aggressive drumming with a harpist in the lead chair. I don't know. But I don't, I'm not sure that aside from Frank, she had the gift necessarily, and maybe that's just, again, the difficulty of the harp, of interacting with or kind of getting symbiosis with other musicians, you know, getting a set going where the sum is greater than the parts. It's not harp on top of, it's harp with these yeah. other instrumentalists who are like kind of pushing her along and she's pushing them and they're maybe uh, influencing each other's ideas and sounds. It's, it's, we don't, and it, maybe it's just in the nature of her inability to, you know, she wasn't able to like tour with this stuff. She wasn't able to have an ongoing group. Uh, she did lots of studio work and education and writing and all sorts of, you know, very productive things, but she was not a leader of a jazz group on a long-term basis. It just wasn't economically viable. So maybe if she'd had that chance, we'd get her in a trio setting where it's a little closer to like a Bill Evans dynamic than we have here, where it's kind of Dorothy and these guys playing behind her. I don't know. Yeah, I agree. And I also just, I don't, I think it's a weird... I don't know that I like the cover of this one. It's, <laughs> you know, I, I get it. Uh, action shot there. You're kind of uh, looking at her chin and her hands are right in front. You know, I just, it's, yeah, okay. I mean, I, I, I'm not sure that's what I want to put on my wall. Okay, so finally we now get, I feel like this is the album, and it is the one from 1965, so we've kind of made it to the mid-60s here. It's the one from the one major label, Atlantic, the fantastic harp of Dorothy Ashby, and this is the one where I feel like maybe we're starting to get glimpses of her later projects that get a lot more wide-ranging. What do you think of the fantastic harp of Dorothy Ashby? Um, So, yeah, this is, it's like, She's she's got to where she wanted to get to, right? It's like harp fronting quintet, quintet. Well, well, basically quintet. So it's she's got a good rhythm section. She has the amazing Dick Davis. So now she's got like this yeah. Is now our, Richard Davis is here. Yeah, <laughs> right. We've got we've got a great bass player. Not that the guys who came before were bad, but Dick Davis can do anything, right? And Grady Tate, respectable. Didn't he play with Monk? It's a name I've heard of. I, I can't. I yeah. cannot tell you right now his his CV, but for sure. 
And he's got, and she's got Willie Bobo. I don't know who that is on percussion, but you know, she basically is, you know, leading quintet. We've got a trombone player, you know, she's got a, a trombone player on a number of the tracks, two of whom at least I've heard of Quentin Jackson and Jimmy Cleveland. So this is a different voice now, right? Um, with the, with, with the trombone. And, um, I like, I, I, again, I kind of, I kind of like the song stack. I thought, uh, fun choices here were uh, feeling good um yeah. and and house of the rising sun Now, you know, this is before Doors or whomever made it into a thing. But, you know, and the song's been around forever. But it's cool to hear her do that song. And then, of course, there's another Ellington number. So, yeah, the, the tune stack is good. And I don't know about you, but I thought um, the trombone was another good choice. We you, you were talking earlier about um, how it can be hard for a soft or a soft sounding instrument to cut against. Uh, harsher instruments. And we talked about this some podcasts back when we talked about the flutist uh, Elsa Nilsson and who she spoke in feelingly about what it's like to try. Was it Elsa Nilsson? I feel like it was her. Maybe well, it was a different. You're probably right, though. She does have electric guitar on her thing. But yeah, that she had to find a way to kind of get that voice in there because it is not an intrinsically powerful instrument. Flute and right. neither is and hard. So you yeah. find a way to sort of, you know, mic and blend and mix and record. Um, and so I feel like uh, the move to trombone from flute is like a step forward and a good step forward. I feel like um, this is an interesting set of sounds and I feel like it I feel like it's a surprising set of sounds. And I feel like it's there's enough oddness here that I, I, I found it relatively compelling. I, I mean, I don't know if you did, but I thought this is pretty good. So, yeah, I, I, I like this and I thought this marked a kind of step forward for her. And, and and a good one. So uh, what happens after this, not so good. The next album, I haven't heard it, but I, I don't really want to hear it. It's Dorothy with a symphony, right? An orchestra. Yeah. And I'm like, no, no, I don't, I, no, don't want to do that. Um, and it's got, you know, Burt Bacharach. And it has like one jazz song, Freddie Hubbard, uh, one Freddie Hubbard song. But it's got the... The theme song to Dor- Valley of the Dolls. I mean, it's just... I'm, yeah, I, I feel like that's the one that the booklet, as they talk about her career in general, says this is kind of the low point <laughs> where it's, you know, the most commercial sounding. And then, you know, she does more interesting stuff like Afro Harping and the right. Rubiot, you know. But but there's that moment where they just really commercialize her. So actually, the Animals cover of House of the Rising Sun is 1964. Oh, wow. This okay. is 65. So, yeah, this is the album where I feel like, uh, oh, oh, well, look, the 60s happened. You know, you get, there's some of the jazz stuff, but there's some of the boogaloo sound, that mm-hmm. brass behind her. There's uh, a couple of covers that, you know, we associate with rock or with, and I don't know, we're feeling good. It's got a wild history, right? It, it's, yeah. But it, it, it seems like one of those songs that the 60s had a lot of interest in and did in a lot of different ways. 
you know, I'm not sure where does invitation originally come from a movie or any, I, I'm not sure, but yeah, this one, it, it just seems like the energy level picks up. Does, I mean, yes. one thing we're talking about is just, there's more money here, right? Atlantic is just a better equipped label than any of these independents. Not that it was a huge giant corporate behemoth at this time, but I mean, it, it's a little bit bigger operation. And they give her a, a little bit more dynamic and co- com- complex setting, and I do think it helps. Yeah, I, I, I like – this is one where my ears perk up after being a little checked out for, for albums five and six, four and five, you know, where I'm mean, like yep. a little bit uh, – and then it's, oh, here we go. Okay, this is good. I'm happy now. And even, you know, we've, we've now got – I don't know what this exactly is a picture of, but it's kind of – uh, abstract art of a harpist you know it, it it is if you look carefully but it's you know we're again we've hit the 60s you know this is no longer uh very straightforward representational stuff it's 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 a little bit more expressionistic and the music is you know it's not out in that sense but and it's not i mean what we have not talked about what this box it doesn't really touch on is that whole subgenre of spiritual jazz that we associate with Alice Coltrane and that's certainly in the Rubiot of Dorothy Ashby. Ashby is a major avatar of it, at least for that one record, you know, and that role that harp plays in that genre, subgenre, whatever you want to call it, that, you know, it really has never uh, had the dominance in, in quote unquote straight ahead jazz or ordinary fusion or all the other subgenres of jazz. But in spiritual jazz, it's kind of often popped up uh, as a signifier of cosmic consciousness and, you know, space and heaven and meditation. So she's kind of moving towards a place where the harp seems to kind of fit rather than having to prove, as you say, proof of concept. It can do this, uh, whereas I think for a lot of people with spiritual jazz, it's like, oh, but it should do that. It, it does, you know, you it, the connotations work with the, the playing they, they enhance that subgenre kind of automatically. Uh, we're not there yet. I don't know that I call this album spiritual jazz. I just would call it, this is a mid-60s jazz album that is aware it's in the mid-60s. I mean, she's clearly interested in this newer stuff. She's not just Ben Webster still playing the same old standards, and a guy loved Ben Webster to death, but, you know, he didn't give a fuck about the Summer of Love or, you know, the swinging england or any of that shit it was just he just that was it was completely alien to him there was you know none of that stuff touches him whereas here she's you know, a younger person more involved with it so yeah i think it's i think it's a good one i not i guess it was a little bit stupid not to realize that on six of these tracks it, it is a trombone group i, I knew it was right. brass but i guess i you know hadn't realized that there's no trumpets there patrick you idiot it's just trombones so an interesting you know we've seen that on um Michael Michel Legrand's uh, Legrand Jazz, or whichever the one he did on Columbia, you know, where he's got a couple of the tracks on that are trombone choir tracks. So yeah, um, other thoughts about Dorothy and this set of records? No, I'm just glad I had a chance to listen to it, and you know, on the on the strength of this, she ought to be a little better known. It's good stuff, not bad at all. Yeah, I agree. I think for me, four of these six records are. I think strong. The other two I'm a little bit less certain on. I mean, I notice all music gives um, the one we just finished talking about on Atlantic, the fantastic jazz harp, like three and a half. So I think I give it four stars. I think it's pretty good, but there's that sense of, yeah, this is a, a little known by way of jazz. And of course, when she's doing this, I mean, you think about, she's releasing an album, 1958. 
I mean, holy fuck, <laughs> you know, that's kind of one of the great years of jazz of all time. It's a little hard to find oxygen in the room when you're competing with things like Time Out and Kind of Blue. And, you know, I just, there's a, jazz is hitting an absolute peak here and everybody was fighting for mind share and space. And, you know, a young person on a almost unknown jazz instrument with no real major backing and who is not hooked up. I mean, again, what you don't get is a, she doesn't have a, a, a a kind of internship career where she's playing with well-known jazz musicians older than herself and getting featured by them and then stepping out. It just, that just doesn't happen. Uh, she's playing a lot of sessions as a faceless harpist. And I think the story was on, if it's magic on the Stevie wonder album songs on the key of life, he brought in Alice Coltrane to play harp on that tune and she kept ignoring what he told her to do <laughs> oh, boy. Like, stevie i don't hear it that way this is what i want to play you know and so they brought in dorothy ashby and she's like what do you want me to play and she played it beautifully so um she's a little bit she's more, a, yeah she's a pro yes absolutely a very fine i mean just and we and i'm not equipped to talk about it but my understanding is she's just a very fine harpist period but one who tried to explore the role harps could play in jazz. You know, and when I go to a classical music conference, I always know I'm in for something good if they bring out two harps. I, I, remember, I assume it's probably just for sheer reinforcement. You know, we've been talking about, well, right, I don't know, right. they, do they play different? But I don't know. It's like, man, I got two harps, man. This this is an important piece. Yeah, I, I got the full, but I busted the budget on this one, you know. But yeah, I, I think certainly right now, if you go through the new jazz records bins at a record store, you're going to run across a couple Ashby albums. I don't think that was the case 15 years ago. I think that people's efforts have put her name higher into the consciousness. Whether this particular set, given the way it's made up, given the price of entry, is is going to spread her name further, I just don't know. I feel like you have to kind of already be a pretty serious disciple of Dorothy Ashby to think about getting this but you know maybe the discussions around it and the publicity around it will get people to listen to her music even if that's not the way they're going to access it you know because it again i'm not trying i think it looks like a beautiful lush package certainly the sound of these digital uh, masters was great and they say that four of the six were done for master tapes and the other two they they did with the best materials available i mean sometimes you know you can imagine uh, archivists probably weren't labels weren't focusing hyper specifically on Dorothy's output and you know, things get lost in, in the smaller labels. Well, um, thanks for going on this journey with me. It's, it's an interesting project and you know, we wish it well. And she's an interesting musician. I, I kind of like in a minor groove. I think that's uh, of the three uh, Frank West projects that might be my favorite. I don't want to swear to it, but all those are, are pretty good. If you want to hear is the bebopper and then I probably the next place of coral out of this group, I'd say would be the Atlantic one. Um, give that a try. The fantastic jazz harp.
Well, do you have any pop matters on your mind? I don't, but I have something else. Okay. Um, I have been, uh, I can't remember where I came across it, but I got it cheaply. I got uh, Gary Burton's autobiography. Oh, okay. Learning to listen. And uh, I'm like two-thirds of the way through it. And so I wanted to talk about it for a minute. Uh, first of all, uh, another Indiana jazz player. Uh, so there's that. I'd forgotten that. Where, where's he from? Where's Gary from? He Gary is from, from downstate. His family moved a couple of times. They're from, uh, I, I'm not going to remember the town, small town downstate. Oh, okay. That's fine. I was just curious. As, as a current Hoosier. Um, yes. Um, but he is, I think it ought to be called, not learning to listen. Anderson, but, Indiana. Okay. Anderson. Anderson. Okay. It ought to be called, I'm the luckiest bastard alive. Because his entire career, I mean, so that, uh, I have to explain why I say that. Um, because part of the, the, the burden of the book is to talk about his, uh, not just his sort of jazz history um, and his place in jazz, but also um, his coming to terms with his homosexuality and and what that means to be a jazz player in a time where you know you, he he came up at a time where that wasn't something you could openly be and so you know the text so to say that he's like his bastard alive I don't mean when I say that to short shrift to the challenges he had as a player coming up at a time when it was very difficult to be uh, true to your sexuality in the jazz world, given how how the, the lack of acceptance for uh, that sexuality. Um, so when I say he's like his best in the world, what I what I mean is the dudes. He's just in the right place at the right time, over and over and over again. And and to be sure, he has an enormous amount of talent. Yeah. But I mean, it's like. When one gig ends, Stan gets calls. When Stan gets it, you know, when George Shearing ends, Stan gets calls. When Stan gets ends, well, you know, his label wants him to start his own, his own group and he starts the quartet, you know. I mean, he just, he's like in the right place at the right time and just stuff happens for him. And, you know, he has the good sense to take advantage of these opportunities. But my God, I mean, he's led a charmed musical life in terms of career and, and timing. He's had some bad stuff happen, but not a lot. Like things have gone, you know, he enjoyed success really early, found mentors really early and made important connections really early and then just built on them. Um, he had some negative things happen, but this is not a guy whose career has been blocked. Like his artistic expression has been blocked. Um, the thing that I've found the most fun is reading about him with Getz, Oh my God! I had no idea Getz was so insane. Um, uh, <laughs> well, we know he's he was an asshole. Uh, he yeah. was, uh, yeah. Uh, Burton says he was. You know, he probably would have been diagnosed as bipolar today. That that Getz was this very you know difficult personality, and in his description, he wonders if Getz might not have been gay himself, because um, Getz according to Burton, hit on any woman he could. Like, you know, he was married, but he hit on women constantly. I mean, just recreationally all the time. But he also had this weird way, according to Burton, of talking about good-looking men and saying things like, you look good enough to eat, you know, and, and <laughs> sort of being sort of aggressively commenting on... Um, male sexuality, which made Burton think, well, maybe there's something there, you know? Yeah. 
Never never heard that Maybe. aspect, but yeah. I hadn't either, but it was, it was sort of fascinating. But the stories of Getz are amazing. The guy, I had no idea he was so fucking nuts. I mean, an amazing player, but deeply disturbed. I mean, yeah, yeah. fundamentally, <laughs> just a really disturbed individual. Burton describes him as profoundly paranoid. And yet, in spite of his paranoia, he would choose settings and, and choose people to play with who challenged him, which is interesting because you'd think, you know, a lot of paranoid players, people who are paranoid about their status or whatever, would would rush away from challenges, but apparently Getz kind of thrived on that. Like he he wanted to be put in settings that pushed him and and chose people who pushed him, which is you know just fascinating to kind of hear. The the, the best anecdote is when um and I'll just repeat this when I'll stop talking about this book. But um, apparently when he was in Getz's quartet, Swallow was in the band. Steve Swallow was that's where they started their association, and uh, Roy Haynes was the drummer. So you know that's that's a good quartet. And Getz had long harbored an ambition to play Carnegie Hall, like that was his dream. And uh, so they had set this up. They were going to play Carnegie Hall, and he broke his he he kicked he kicked a window, he kicked a door somewhere, and broke his foot. Of course, he uh, did. or messed up his foot. <laughs> And so the first, they were going to do a warm-up concert in Boston, and then they were going to play the real date in Carnegie Hall. And Getz is in a wheelchair, so he can't play the first night. And and so they thought, well, we'll just go on as a trio. But they call up, of all people, Dizzy Gillespie, who who opens with them in in Boston. So they have this weird night playing with Dizzy Gillespie, right? And this is I forget what year, sixty-three or sixty-four. And then they go down to New York City, and it's gonna be, it's gonna be Dion Warwick opening, and then this crazy piano player, like a stride piano player from Getz's youth, begged him, "Can I play between sets? Can I play piano between sets?" And Getz agreed. He said, "Sure, you can play. You can you can be on stage and play Carnegie Hall between sets between Dion's set and my set. So the the rhythm section is gonna play for Dion, and then." This stride pianist, who's blind, by the way, I have to look up his name, but he's a blind guy. He's going to play between sets, and then Getz is going to come out. And he said it was, as he describes it, it was like one of the worst nights ever. It started out bad because Dionne Warwick shows up in this silver lame gown but forgot her shoes. And... (sighs) They, you know, she can't go on without silver, silver lame shoes. Problem solved. They go out to the audience and find a woman with silver lame shoes and they borrow the shoes from her. Okay, fine. So Dion puts on the silver lame shoes, which are like two sizes too small. So they have to stuff the ends of the shoes with like tissue paper. Oh, too big. As a result, okay, okay. Too big. Okay. And she can only walk like little tiny steps. Yeah. And Carnegie Hall stage is gigantic. And so there's the trio, you know, the rhythm section waiting for her. And she's announced and she comes in for the wings. And he's like, it took her like five minutes to get to the microphone. Oh, God. Take these teeny tiny steps. And he said, once she got there, she was amazing. She was, she was saying brilliantly. But then they finished their set and they bring because Burton had had experience with George Shearing, you know, blind pianist. He brings this this blind pianist on and you know they bring him center stage and he starts playing and they they leave the stage you know between sets but the guy wouldn't leave like he just kept playing and play he didn't play like three numbers he just kept playing he was ecstatic i'm in carnegie hall and he's blind like you can't wave him off 
they actually had to kind of go out and grab him and get him off the stage, right? <laughs> so then they bring out Getz, who's in a wheelchair. Getz is playing Carnegie Hall in a fucking wheelchair, and he's, he has to play his horn sort of like Lester Young because his right, right leg yeah. is stuck straight out. So he's, you know, he looks like Lester Young all night. And only appropriate. Yeah. The best part of this, the best part of all of this is he, they have a good night, you know, they play. And then when it's time to leave, Getz, Getz can only use one hand to do the wheelchair. Oh, sorry, they have Dion Warwick come back out and the blind guy come back out for like a big, you know, encore, you know, like all of them, right? So there's the quartet and Dion and this other pianist. Fine. So they, they do their playing and blah, blah, blah. So then someone has to help Dion off stage and then Swallow and, and Haynes leave and uh, Burden is helping the blind guy off the stage. And Gats is on the stage with one hand on his wheelchair, and he's just going in circles because he can't get off stage. He needs two hands. So they're, like, clapping and clapping, and he's just going in circles. He can't get off the fucking stage because he can't use his other... He's holding his horn, and he can't use two hands on his wheelchair. So he's just literally going round and round in circles until Burton, like... Burton gets to the edge of the stage with the blind guy and just tells him, keep walking straight. You'll get to someone. And he has to go back out and like wheel gets off. And I was like, I would have busted a gut laughing seeing fucking Stan gets just go in circles at the front of the stage, trying to get off. And he was like screaming for someone to come get him and no one would come out. And you know, everyone's clapping and he's just literally pushing his wheelchair in a circle. Cause he can only use one hand. I thought this is one of the funniest things I've ever read. So, Burton's got a lot of these stories, um, and some of them are great. And like I said, I'm about, uh, I'm up to his, uh, 70s, uh, period. And, you know, the book is long on his earlier period and less detailed on his later period. So I did find it interesting that, um, when he started his quartet, the first person he, he picked to play with him was Chick Korea. And he said, it was one of those things. We just got together, we rehearsed, and he's like, we did not gel at all. Like there was no, like we both really liked each other, but we had zero chemistry. And after like a rehearsal, we both knew like, you know, it was like we had long admired each other. We wanted to play together, but it was a terrible experience. You know, the rehearsal, just no chemistry at all. And they mutually agreed, okay, you're not going to be in the quartet. And then he got hired by Miles Davis right after that. So, okay. Huh. And Burton is very big on insisting that he started Fusion, not Miles, that, that he got there right. first. And yeah, I mean, you listen to that stuff and you both get it and it just it just doesn't feel like most of what Fusion became. So, yeah, I, I you know, I've got everything he did on ECM in the 70s. I've got some some of the stuff in the 80s. I've really grown to like his stuff and I didn't really listen to it as a young man at all. So he's. He's grown on me, but yeah, he's um, he's just an incredible player. Yeah, well, I don't have so a fun. Okay, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was gonna say no. If uh, you finish up, I've got a, have a quick one, and that's that's it. Do you have more on Burton? No, that's all I wanted to say. I mean, there's no. I've listened to a lot of pop music in the last few uh, weeks, but nothing that I want to really talk about. So yeah, that's. I just wanted to talk about the Burton biography. If you're interested, I'll send it to you when I'm done with it. Otherwise, I'm I'm not keeping it. Yeah, no, I, I would like to read it. I think that that, that sounds like right. fun, and I, I I guess I vaguely knew that he'd done it, but I'd forgotten it. So yeah, it'd be definitely worth reading.
Yeah, well, I, my, I went to Luna after dropping Rand off at the airport today, and my great regret is I did not pick up the Go-Go's Vacation in a new release, but I, I'll, I'm sure I'll get it soon. It's the one of the three records by the Go-Go's I don't have a copy of, so. I, I think it occurred to me at the time, it's like, I can probably find this used somewhere for five bucks, so. That's the other possibilities. Maybe I'll get it. I did get a couple uh, Cocktail Twins albums. I know you're not a big fan. The one that was newest new to me was um, Head Over Heels, uh, which is their second record, and it is rockier and a little bit more abrasive than their later dream pop stuff. And um, I quite liked it. Um, it's by no means... You definitely can hear the Cocktail Twins sounds on it. Apparently, their very first one... It's kind of a band in transition, and you don't, it's not as identifiable as what they became. But this one, you can hear the seeds, but they're still, I don't know, maybe, maybe more varied textures, and it's, it's, you know, got a little bit more impact than some of their later stuff. And I think it's quite good. So, and the pressing seems fine. So, cool. It's a good way to get that. So, that's, that's my report. Old music, uh, going back to an old group, but not, not an album I'd heard by them before. that concludes Jazz Bastard Podcast 272. As always, you can reach us at pat at jazzbastard.com or mike at jazzbastard.com. You can look me up on Facebook or drop me a line at All About Jazz. All About Jazz streams the podcast and you can download it from www.jazzbastard.com from Apple Podcasts, from Spotify, from Stitcher, from those kinds of places. Tune in next time where I have an eclectic show featuring two piano albums from the fairly recent past and two brand new, rather ambitious works. We're going to look at music by Michel Mengelberg, Chucho Valdez, Ben Wendell, and Mehmet Ali Sanlikol. I'm pretty sure he pronounced that right because that's the musician himself. Until next time, Take care.